Welcome. It is Monday, March 8th, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I'm Russell Berman, co-director of the Working Group. We publish regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy that you can read at www.hoover.org caravan. In addition, we explore the Middle East here on our podcast, The Caravan Podcast. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. In fact, you can subscribe to any and all of our podcasts, including Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, The Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, The Pacific Century with Misha Oslin and John Yu, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Karen Elliott House. Karen's distinguished career includes serving as foreign editor and later publisher of the Wall Street Journal. As a reporter, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of the Middle East, including interviews with Jordan's King Hussein. Her book, entitled Saudi Arabia, Its People, Past, Religion, Fault Lines, and Future, provides a lucid analysis of the complexities and challenges of Saudi society, politics, and culture. And Saudi Arabia is our topic today. Saudi Arabia has been in a partnership with the United States since the Roosevelt administration, but that partnership may be coming under some stress currently. Drawing on her deep knowledge of the kingdom, Karen has contributed an article to the current caravan on Saudi human rights. So let's begin there. Karen, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning to you. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, let's begin with the human rights question. What is the status of rights in Saudi Arabia? Have things changed since you wrote your book? Uh, things have actually changed dramatically um, since the book came out in 2012. Um, while what people focus on as human rights in Saudi Arabia obviously has a troubled aspect now because the current crown prince uh, does not brook criticism and thus has um, locked up a number of people. But in the country as a whole, there is a dramatic increase in what I would call individual human rights. Um, In the last four years, he has lifted the heavy hand of the religious police off the society and allowed women not just to drive, but to work in all kinds of jobs, to attend sporting events, to um, leave the country, uh, get a job, go to college without the permission of their father, brother, um, husband, their guardian. So in terms of what's happened for half the Saudi population, there's been at least what I would call a dramatic increase in their in their rights. I'm not excusing um, the um, the record of the conventional human rights aspect of 
uh, jailing people who disagree with you. Um, but it is a very different place now. Well, it sounds like everyday life for many people, especially women, has changed. Uh, but it also sounds like it's a complicated story. Uh, we tend to like very um, black and white, good and evil stories, but the crown mm -hmm. prince himself, who evidently has an authoritarian streak, was also a driver behind this, uh, this liberalization. Is that fair to say? Yes, he is the driver behind it. I mean, the, the interesting contrast between King Abdullah, who was um, running the country even before he was officially king because his predecessor was largely non-functional, but King Abdullah, who was king from 2005 to 2015, was seen by Saudis as a grandfatherly kind figure he did lay some of the groundwork that enabled um, the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is definitely not a grandfatherly figure. He's a 35-year-old authoritarian um, figure. Uh, but King Abdullah did lay the groundwork for some of the things that Mohammed bin Salman has done. King Abdullah took women on his first foreign trip. It was seen as a um, kind of window dressing by foreigners, but Saudi women actually loved King Abdullah and thought he was going to do more for them. He didn't actually do much more other than, you know, name a, a female as the deputy minister of education, but she had to communicate with her male colleagues like we're all doing now over Zoom. She had to communicate over her computer digitally with her male colleagues. And it was considered an absolute scandal that King Abdullah put a, a um, um, medal around the neck of a woman that he was recognizing for her accomplishments, for a man to be in that proximity to a woman to whom he was not related. Um, now, young men and women in Saudi Arabia are sitting in Starbucks, drinking coffee, sharing computers, you know, doing the same things American kids do. They can check into a hotel now without being asked for proof of marriage. I mean, if you're if you're a conservative, some of the things in Saudi Arabia are horrifying for you. But the crown prince has brought this about and his constituency is the young people. And young people uh, make up the bulk of the Saudi population. Roughly 60% of Saudis are under uh, 30 years old. So they like these changes. And he's getting credit for that, even though uh, he obviously has uh, outraged uh, the religious conservatives and many of his royal relatives whom he has jailed are taking their money. Well, let me ask about this transformation in the landscape of rights and the the transformation in the the rulers. Now, uh, the crown prince is the crown prince. He's not the king, but he's the presumptive next king. 
so that'll be a big generational change in a country that is very young. How does how do young Saudis look at at the crown prince? Is he a representative of their generation? That is uh, how they see him. Um, they like the fact that somebody their age is probably the next king, but as important as really running things now. King Salman um, is 85 and in poor health. And even before he was in poor physical health, he was deemed to be um, perhaps suffering from mild dementia. So nobody knows exactly the, uh, the, I don't know exactly the state of his health, and I think most people don't, but the crown prince is clearly uh, in charge. So it poses a problem, I think, for the Biden administration who set out to say, we're not going to talk to the crown prince. He's evil. He's responsible for the murder of Khashoggi. And you know, he may or may not be. I wasn't in the consulate. Uh, I find it hard because I have met the crown prince any number of times. And he's a very um, savvy guy. I find it entirely believable that he wanted to, uh, he authorized kidnapping Khashoggi and bringing him back to Saudi Arabia. I find it hard to believe he would have authorized killing him in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul because that would take somebody pretty stupid. Of course, it could have been an accident. But at any rate, I think um, young Saudis say, I mean, they just say to you, yes, it's possible he did it, but look at all the other things he's done and so far dismiss it. Um, so if you were a betting person, I think you would bet that, uh, the crown prince will be the next king of Saudi Arabia, but it is also true that the kingdom has had, um, six crown princes over, a uh, little more than a decade and two of them died without becoming king. I want to return to the dynasty question in a moment, but let's focus on uh, society as a whole. In your book, you describe very vividly the conservative character of the society, its traditionalism, uh, its passivity. Indeed, that's what you talk about. Uh, has that changed as well? Has the Saudi personality been transformed? I think it has changed some. Um, there is still, in my view, a passivity in Saudi society because they have been completely dependent on the government. Uh, most people worked for the government. So as they say, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, one of the things the crown prince is trying to do because the government can no longer afford cradle to grave welfare um, is encourage people to work in the private sector to take responsibility for themselves. That is happening very slowly. Even young Saudis still prefer to work for the government 
they still are more inclined to do what they're told. In our society here in the U.S., individualism is uh, the hallmark of each of us. We are an individual. We can do what we want to do. In Saudi Arabia, everyone is a member of a family, which is a part of a tribe, which is a part of a region, which is a part of a nation, which is ultimately part of the great Islamic Ummah or community. So people don't act individually. It's just frowned upon. Um, and you adjust your conduct to the people around you. Um, so most Saudis don't talk much if there are strangers around. They want to make sure they don't say the wrong thing. So the passivity still exists, but young people are a bit less um, passive, if you will, um, than their, their parents and grandparents. Uh, for the benefit, uh, that's a problem for him. Yeah. For, for the benefit of our listeners, Karen, could you describe the way the dynasty has um, passed on succession uh, since um, since uh, the middle of the last century? Really, uh, this is really a dramatic generational change that is going to happen, it, is it not? Um, it, since the founder. Uh, the modern Saudi state, um, died in 1953. The crown has passed from one of his sons to another. And he told his eldest son, um, who inherited from him, um, and his second eldest son, don't fight, you know, um, because the first and second Saudi states in the 17 and 1800s were brought down by infighting in the family. Um, and so this family has tried to be very careful. This um, uh, descendants of um, Ibn Saud, the current, uh, the king that founded this kingdom in uh, 1932, uh, has tried to be very careful about uh, compromise and um, coalition. And so the family has obviously had some divisions in it, but uh, has passed the crown from brother to brother, not by age, uh, because they have passed over uh, some of the older brothers, but to the most qualified. And the family is the one that decides the most qualified. So what has happened now is that essentially the old man had 44 sons. They're pretty near the end of the sons. Uh, King Salman is 85, and there are a couple of brothers, uh, several brothers left, but um, um, not necessarily deemed qualified. Um, King Salman fired one of his brothers who was crown prince and installed his own son. Um, so they have to make the generational change. And I think most Saudis believe they have made it now with the king picking his own son. 
what upsets the family is that by doing that, he is in essence establishing a, a British monarchy. It'll go through the Salman line from now on, and the rest of the royals are in essence disenfranchised. Um, the crown prince has obviously not picked a deputy crown prince because that would uh, be that would make very clear that they're not going to involve the rest of the family or it would allow him to pick someone from the rest of the family. Most people assume he will pick his now seven, eight-year-old son. Um, but, um, you know, whether if when the king dies, he can actually, Mohammed bin Salman, be in essence king alone with no real uh, deputy crown prince other than a child, um, you know, that that's a high risk thing to do. So whether he tries to do that or not remains to be seen. But a lot of Saudis think that is what will happen. And they believe the generational change has occurred. So we're at a pivotal moment in dynastic succession, or we will be when the current king passes. Uh, but the presumptive heir, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, has been um, effectively indicted by the U.S. government, and the Biden administration seems to be boycotting him. Um, how is how, you've been watching U.S.-Saudi relations for a long time? How can the U.S. best navigate these waters now? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I don't know because it's so undiplomatic in a sense to be as far out on a limb as uh, candidate Biden got himself by saying, I'm going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Um, I'm going to punish the crown prince. Um, and then having to, once he became president, Biden say, whoops, I can't actually do that. It's too dangerous. We need a relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, I personally think he has damaged the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia quite deeply because Mohammed bin Salman, whether you like him or not, is a very self-confident and assertive um, individual. And I think, um, you know, he he's not going to slap Biden around the way Biden tried to slap him around, but I don't think that um, I think I think the president has actually given the crown prince a leg up on him because he's made clear that I can't punish you. Um, the intelligence community in the U.S. would clearly um, very much like to see Mohammed bin Salman replaced by his cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, whom the crown prince shoved out of the crown prince role um, nearly four years ago. Um, but it's hard to see that happening. Um, in the days of a decade ago, there were several power centers in Saudi Arabia, the defense, the National Guard, the Ministry of Interior. They were all run by one of the brothers they all had great power. They all had to accommodate each other. 
all of that is now under the control of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So I don't know how one wages a coup, if you will, that, uh, that gets rid of him. But I think, I know there are still Saudi, uh, Saudi princes who hope and pray that that happens when King Salman dies. They say some of them will get him when his father's not there to protect him. Um, I wouldn't bet on it. So I think the U.S. has a problem going forward. They have offended an individual who is a extremely uh, proud and uh, abrasive man, and they are almost certainly going to have to deal with him. He's 35. They could have to deal with him for the next 50, 55 years. So it, it's um, it was not smart U.S. policy because it's damaged the U.S. interests. We're at a pivotal moment in dynastic succession. There's a tense character to the relationship between Riyadh and Washington. And all this is transpiring with Iran right across the Gulf. Uh, how do the Saudis view the Islamic Republic of Iran? And is their fear justified? Um, they are fearful, and I think their fear is justified. Um, the Iranians' um, goal uh, is to spread their uh, Shia Islamic revolution and to displace the Saudi royal family in the um, holy cities of um, Mecca and Medina. And they make no, they make no bones about it. They are there um, it, it, looking for an opportunity to destabilize and destroy the Al Saud regime. It hasn't proved easy for them, but they're still at it. And I think um, they're obviously horrified to see the U.S. try to go back and resurrect the nuclear relationship with Iran um, to put a high priority on um, Iranian relations. Um, President Obama, if you recall, said that Iran and Saudi Arabia needed to learn to share the Persian Gulf, um, which insulted the Saudis greatly. And now the Saudis, you know, they see... Um, just um, yesterday, uh, you know, the Iranians were um, sending drones and missiles into um, Rastanura, the chief um, oil um, facility in uh, Saudi Arabia for exporting, uh, refining and exporting Saudi oil. Um, no damage was done, but, you know, it's not a... Um, the Iranians are showing no um, signs of wanting to have peaceful relations with the Saudis under U.S. tutelage. Um, they are still hoping to get the U.S. to um, let their 
give up, give up the sanctions which Trump imposed, and uh, all they want is their money flowing again because the Iranian people are unhappy at uh, a terrible economy, which uh, you know President Trump in many ways imposed on them. So they're hoping to get back to the the twenty. Um, 2015 status quo ante with um, JCPOA and go right on with their mischief making in the region. And that troubles the Saudis a great deal. And I think they're very correct to be troubled because I do not believe the Iranians, as long as that regime is there, have any intention of changing their goals. For 40 years, they focused on spreading their theocracy, and that's still their goal. Uh, let, let me circle back to uh, our starting point with regard to human rights. Um, can you compare the status of human rights in uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, its trajectory toward reform, and human rights in contemporary Iran? I, I do not know Iran, so I'm simply, um, you know, dealing with the numbers, but if you look at um, the Iranian regime, just like uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, is really willing to brook no criticism whatsoever. And in um, um, last year, I think they um, executed 236 people down from 251 the year before. Um, Saudi Arabia actually executed only 27 last year only <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because they, um, they no longer um, uh, give the death penalty uh, for drug uh, possession or drug crimes. Um, so you wouldn't actually want to be um, a citizen of either of these countries, but I think in the U.S., Saudi Arabia winds up with the worst reputation because um, we don't like monarchy. We don't like oppression of women, which has been the case until the last few years. And Iran, quote, has an election, even though the Ayatollah determines who gets to run, we don't, we look past that. So we see Iran as, oh, they have an election, that's good. Um, but I probably, if I had to choose, would uh, probably prefer to live in Saudi Arabia, maybe because I know it better, but because um, it seems slightly less um, arbitrary um, than Iran. But human rights is not a virtue in uh, in either of these countries, and it you know it's hard for the U.S. Uh, we have interests and we have values, and we can't sacrifice all our interests on the altar of our values. But we also can't sacrifice all our values on the altar of our interests. You have to find some way um, to have a middle course. And that's going to be the challenge for Biden, I think, going forward, having already overplayed his anti-Saudi hand. 
I think that's a good point to draw this to a conclusion. Karen, thank you for the conversation. We've learned a lot about Saudi Arabia, as well as the complexities of the challenges faced by U.S. foreign policy. Karen's book, Saudi Arabia, Its People, Past, Religion, Thought Lines, and Future, remains an important resource for anyone interested in the character of the kingdom and the prospects for reform. I found it on Amazon in various formats. As always, I want to thank our listeners. You can follow Hoover's Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at www.hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at HooverInst, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at Russell Berman, S-F. Please return to listen to our future discussions of the podcast later this month when my caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will speak with Jiu Wang, a Princeton doctoral candidate, AEI fellow, and former political prisoner in Iran about human rights there and the Biden administration's Iran policy. I'll be back in about a month. Hope you'll be joining. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Karen. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.